we're certainly thankful for the opportunity that's ours to be able to come together on an occasion such as this one. We are so thankful. I might proceed to at least make an observation that the lesson text that was read just a moment ago, drawn from the wording of 1 Peter chapter 2, is for a lesson that will be shortcoming in the very near future. Uh, this lesson tonight, which is the one on the wall to, to behind me, is actually one that it seems to me might be very pertinent as you and I give thought to some of the things contained in Titus chapter number 3. So if you'll be turning in your Bible to that particular chapter, we'll be casting a spotlight on at least one of the verses there, and quite frankly, that one will be almost all of the time of our consideration this evening. Titus chapter number 3. It is with all of that said that tonight, isn't it amazing that is we have already given some thought to these songs and the messages that they've contained. Messages such as, faith is the victory. And certainly we're mindful of that statement in the Word of God and, what, and how meaningful it is to each of us. That last song about us being straying pilgrims is certainly a reminder that this world is not our home and that we look for a far better place than this one. I might suggest that these opening thoughts on this slide are such that one of the things we're going to appreciate tonight is that there are many statements in the New Testament in which we are commanded to avoid certain things. Now, isn't it true that as often as the Word of God encourages us to be involved in certain things, it's also very important and interesting to observe we're commanded to avoid certain things. And some of them are rather intriguing. And tonight we're going to look at one of them found in Titus 3 verse 8. You may notice on this slide that what we're going to deal with is the idea of a question. Now I know that you and I devote some studies on various Sunday nights to questions and answers. And we often in fact find those very interesting and sometimes even enthralling. But it's also true that there's something in this particular verse that quite frankly is challenging. I might even go so far as to say it like this. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe in a very close way, observe someone make a statement such as this, well, there are no dumb questions. Or maybe they'd say, there's no stupid questions. In light of Titus 3 verse 8, I think we might ought to be cautious about that kind of a statement. Listen to what the inspired apostle in the long ago had to say. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Now so far as Paul has given these instructions to Titus, he has rather resoundingly said, here are some things that are noteworthy and positive and good. But then he says in verse 9, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies, and contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. And so isn't it interesting that to Titus, that person who was again a younger preacher than Paul, that he himself was told to not only avoid it, but to encourage those among whom Titus worked, that they might be aware of the fact that they were needful to avoid certain things. As you can well tell in that list, one of them was foolish questions. I might suggest there are some questions that are foolish. There are some questions that do fall under a category that means they are unworthy of serious attention. 
they are not to be that which you devote precious time and energy and argumentation trying to deal with a question such as this. It might be on that slide, I've tried to define the word question, and it's certainly not a shocking definition. An interrogative expression often used to test knowledge or an inquiry, to seek to find out information. So you pose a question hopefully of some source that would be authoritative enough to provide guidance on that question. Questions are very important in the Bible. Depending on what source you consult, there are well over 2,000, and some would even say over 3,000 questions in the Bible. That means the asking of a pertinent question is one of God's favorite methodologies to teach. One of His favorite approaches to instill in the human family something worthy of our consideration. One of the last things on that slide then is this. As you and I give thought to questions and what a foolish question might be, let's develop that thought tonight by beginning on this next slide with ideas like this. We just noticed in verse 8 in the reading about the care that's encouraged upon us to maintain good works. As often as the Word of God encourages us to think about and to maintain good works, we're well aware that that phrase sounds rather general. We ought to always, of course, appreciate that that which is called good is defined that way by the God of heaven. It's not merely that we think it's good. It's that God has determined it so and gave order concerning that particular matter. And we are aware of the fact that the church, of course, dwells under the powerful umbrella of the authority of the Word of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God and the Father by Him. And so the actions that we seek to pursue and the works in which we engage, we certainly are aware of what a lovely blessing it is to do those under the banner of God's authority. The word careful, that original Greek word had to do with the idea of specific intention. In other words, you haven't haphazardly engaged in these things. Plans and arrangements and particular approaches and pursuits have been developed. Certainly in a congregation, the elders would be the ones that would be primarily helpful to move us in the direction of always being aware of and those in which we can engage those works that are recognized by God as good. But on that slide, I would be quick to point out this. Verse number 9, here to Titus are some things you must avoid. And you, of course, as you labor in that church on the island of Crete, you will instill in them the need to avoid certain things. And the list begins in verse 9 with foolish questions. I suppose, again, you and I may well have heard the thought that, well, every question has a potential goodness. And Paul certainly didn't say that. Some questions, don't you agree, would be questions. And Paul says, don't waste your time, Titus, dealing with these. Tonight, we're going to think somewhat about foolish questions. As we close that slide, highlighting that thought of a foolish question, let me develop it like this. Isn't it fair to observe that the God of heaven has delivered to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness? That text has so often been a source of great relief, source of great comfort, and quite frankly, a source of tremendous tranquility. 
We need not worry that God has not revealed what you and I need to know. We never need to be concerned that perhaps the Bible is not complete. You may recall a few years ago, there was a rather considered thought, and for a while it ran rather rampant among society, that there are lost books in the Bible. That is to say, books that are not only helpful, but many would say they are just as needful as the books you and I have in our Bibles. There was even a movie that at least promoted somewhat about the so-called lost books in the Bible. Again, for a little while, people were nervous, anxious, concerned about the integrity of the Bible. May you and I take to heart that text in 2 Peter 1.3. All things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed. And therefore, when you and I appreciate the 27 books of the New Testament, coupled with the 39 books of the Old, we have the entirety of that which the Holy Spirit has not only revealed but preserved. And in so doing, we have the fullness of what is needful for you and I to get to heaven. There's no missing books. There are no missing chapters, no missing verses. We don't need to worry about things along that line. It is to say that that's to say this. The Word of God thus should be that what is encouraged upon us in terms of that to which we go, looking for the most needful answers that come your way and mine. What do you and I need to know, ultimately of most significance and importance, in order to please God? Well, we surely need not proceed to the local library in hopes of finding that answer. And we surely do not need to just randomly go to the internet with the hope of finding that answer. We certainly, again, do not need to pursue only what men have often declared and said. There is the Word of God. I hope we're often mindful that, of course, there was a day when there was no Bible as you and I now have it. Now, transition back about 2,000 years, and there, that which was the Word of God. You had the Old Testament on scrolls, which, by and large, the common person never had. You would simply have to gather at the synagogues or the temple in earlier places and hear it read. You didn't have a copy yourself. In later times, we appreciate that it came to be that one might have, of course, that wording in the New Testament in which prophets delivered it. But today, how blessed we are. How genuinely blessed we are. Arguably, the greatest treasure that you and I at least easily are able to hold in our hand is the Bible. Accessible. That which you and I could even carry in a pocket. You can have apps on your phone that will present you the Bible and in fact even read it to you. What a blessing we have in terms of the Word of God. That Bible that you and I have, you'll notice about the lower part of that slide. We should be then quick to say, how do we match that concept with the notion of the questions that men might sometimes ask? All of us, I'm sure, would be quick to say sometimes people can ask a question. And it may be challenging to decipher from the Word of God what a pertinent answer may well be. In fact, one might be left to say, it appears God has not answered that question. I'm sure there are many of us who, in our finer moments, have asked questions leading to perhaps the affairs of things beyond this life. And the absolute specific and particular of matters that will transpire in heaven. We do know a fair amount about heaven. 
But I don't think any of us would be in a position to say we know everything and every detail is going to transpire. But because isn't it true? The secret things, we're told, belong to the Lord. Now Moses delivered that message to the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 29. And so it was in the 29th verse of that chapter, Moses told them there are some things you might have inquiry about, but God has not revealed it for us to know here on earth. We no doubt we'll get the answer at some later time when we arrive beyond the portal of death. But at least for now, we don't seemingly know it. The secret things indeed belong to the Lord. Kind of amazing then to appreciate. If that be true, what might we revisit in Titus 3 verse 9? As we make ready to transition to the next slide, let me at least point out a few of the things mentioned in the verse and then let's give some passing appreciation to it. Beyond the matter of foolish questions, he says, avoid genealogies. Now, we no doubt are aware that in that day of the Old Testament, genealogies were rather significant because that's what allowed you to trace your family's heritage back, for instance, to one of the tribes of Israel. So later in the Old Testament, we knew, for example, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, and there were genealogical papers, if you please, that would have confirmed that truth. Later, when we arrive at the book of Nehemiah, there will be a rather notable reference to the integrity and importance of genealogies to know who has access to a given parcel of land and who will, in fact, be able to dwell there. Just two quick examples. On the other hand, we know that the priesthood had to be of the tribe of Levi. And so it would have been needful for them to be able to trace their heritage back through the ages and arrive back, you see, at the tribe of Levi. But when you and I transition to the New Testament, one of the things that was at least an issue in the early church is there still were people, no doubt of some Jewish extraction, who were still giving importance to the genealogies. Now remember, the Lord had already died on the cross, and that Old Testament law had thus been nailed to it, Colossians 2.14. And because of that, those genealogies did not have the significance for the New Testament era that they had had in the Old. So Paul told Titus, don't dwell on these genealogical matters. If Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so cannot trace their heritage, it doesn't matter anymore about that. Now, can you not imagine in the first century when those who had been brought up understanding that and they still were interested in giving credence to it, that they might well make a big deal in the church about, my heritage leads me to this tribe. Does yours? If the person were thus to say, I don't know, that might well have caused a division. It might have well caused one person to look rather unfavorably upon another one. Paul said that is not to be. Today, of course, there are things even in congregations of our era, likely we don't have anywhere close to the significance in genealogies they did. But isn't it interesting, some families in, in a given congregation, they can almost dwell in a way like that. If you're not a member of our family, they look down upon you, or maybe they look at you somewhat differently. Sometimes that's been referred to as a somewhat clannish behavior in a church. And certainly that's not 
encouraging for the unity and harmony of that particular body of Christ. But Paul went on to say, contentions, avoid contentions. We surely need to be mindful. It is not at all wrong to ask elders a question. Why are we supporting this? What was the basis of your decision for doing it this way? That's not what he means by contentions. This word contentions, again, has a background of argumentative behavior. Maybe an issue has been answered many times before, and yet the person just keeps bringing it up, just keeps on harping on this, not at respecting the authority that has been vested in the answer given. Paul says make sure you teach regarding the avoidance of matters like this. He next mentions strivings about the law. Reference to the law of Moses. That word strivings thus literally means these rather heated discussions connected to matters that had their basis in the law of Moses. As we noted a moment ago, that law had been nailed to the cross. By the time Titus was preaching on the island of Crete, that was no longer a matter of significance for standing in rightness before God. That was past. And yet there were still those who no doubt, due to the way they'd been brought up, they just couldn't let go of that old law and at least some of the details of it. Paul, writing to Titus, said, Let there be no strivings about the law. We can learn from it, appreciate the character of it, and use it to help us know God's general approach to things back then. But it is not a test of fellowship today. No wonder in that connection... The verse closes, verse 9, by saying this, They, that is these things just mentioned, are unprofitable and vain. Now let's go back to the first element in the list. To say that these things are unprofitable means they are not going to develop in a way that will lead to the overall moving forward of the church. They are going to splinter it, if anything. They're going to lead to a loss or at least a diminishing of faith. He said, avoid foolish questions. There are still questions today that would fall under the heading of being somewhat foolish. I have listed for you at least a few passing thoughts as we look at the, use the rest of our lesson time tonight at least to reflect upon this matter of avoiding foolish questions. The first thing that we might thus say, there have been many occasions over the years in which some person's approach to a given matter in the Word of God has come to be used as a test for fellowship. In other words, just because you don't see it my way, I'm in essence going to have nothing to do with you. I'm going to, in essence, excommunicate you at least from my circle of appreciation. But you'll notice, that is not what at all Paul was writing to Titus. And on that slide, I've asked you and I to be very careful about this. On the matters wherein God has spoken, and on the matters where a proper investigation of the Word of God leads to a conclusion, we know what God has said. You and I will stand firmly and very strongly on ideas that He has presented to us. But when it comes to those secret things, those things we learned earlier about which God has not definitively spoken, we are not at liberty to use them as a test of faithfulness. 
Titus 3 verse 9 thus says, avoid foolish questions. What about some of these questions then that might fall under the category of foolishness? I've selected a few. You probably could list many more. But we might just take a moment and at least give some thought about them. There was a time back about 500 years ago when there was a significant discussion. In fact, this discussion was primarily something which rolled forward and was very dominant for almost a century. Think about that. Nearly a hundred years, there was a great deal of consideration on how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Now, excuse me. I would label that a foolish question. You and I know that angels, of course, are spirit beings. They do not have the same kind of fleshly consideration that you and I have. Jesus Himself said this. Did He not remind us that in terms of these spirit beings, they don't have flesh and blood, Luke 24, 39. And you and I remember that is what the Bible does say about them is rich and powerful and very intriguing to be sure. But to ask and to argue and to enter into rather significant and involved discussion about the number of them that can dance on the head of a pen would seem to me a rather great waste of energy and time and consideration. Things that could be developed and utilized for a great deal of benefit in many other ways is given to a discussion like this. Look at the second one. How hot is hell? Have you been asked that one? Have you heard people enter into some discussion about it? Again, that was a bit more recent. There was a time not too long ago when there were articles about this. There was some discussion about this. Wouldn't we all agree? From what the Bible says, I don't want to go there. And any particular consideration in which you could list for me a temperature is rather irrelevant. Again, spirit beings are those who are going to inhabit hell. Didn't Paul write in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're going to put on immortality. It won't be this physical body. From all indications, it'll look like it, but it won't be like this. It won't have flesh and blood. Thus, any temperature you could list will be such that we will not have had the opportunity to appreciate the kind of experience with what that's going to be like. It seems to me, again, how useless it is to ponder. If you and I could ask the rich man of Luke 16, what temperature is it there? Given what's described, I don't think it matters. It's not pleasant. In fact, it's terrible and it's torment. That kind of question I think we can begin to appreciate is one that has occasioned some discussion, but that seems to fall under a category of foolishness. What about the third possibility? We all know the Lord was crucified. And we know that a wooden cross was utilized. May I ask, of what wood was the cross made? I'd be quick to say there's some intrigue, I guess, to pondering it. But it seems to me unworthy to devote even a half a minute of a class period to discuss what that wood was. Does it matter what wood it was? Does that have any bearing on anybody's salvation to know whether that wood exists, what kind of tree it was, the way in which it was fabricated, how it was cut? 
that has no bearing and has no reference, it makes no difference to a person's right standing before God. Maybe the last one is this. Can God make a rock, given that the Bible says He's almighty, so can He make a rock big enough that He can't move it? You often will hear philosophical discussions about that one. In fact, even to this day, that one is raised. And seemingly, any time that a given discussion moves in a direction of pondering the characteristics of the Almighty God and the nature of His omnipotence, this will be one of the first questions I asked. So if He's Almighty, are you telling me He can make a rock big enough He can't move it? Then they'll reason in a circle and thus try to paint you and I in a picture to where we are just rather naive Bible believers, not given to logic and not given to correct thinking, when in fact the shoe is really on the other foot. May I say, as you give thought to those kinds of questions, you probably can think of others that would fall under a similar category than that. I would like us, however, to move to something far more useful. Because isn't it true that if the Bible does at least make note of the reality of foolish questions and the kind of things we just noted in which there will be nobody saved as a result of pondering those kinds of things, look at some other questions that are not in that category. Questions that really are worthwhile and things to which we have the answers. Let me ask these in passing. Is there any word from the Lord? Has the God of heaven spoken and shared that message with the human family? If the answer is yes, then the greatest intent of our life should be centered around that message that He has revealed. And you and I know the answer is yes. That is a great question. May I mention that question, in fact, was verbatim asked in Jeremiah 37, 17. In fact, it was a pagan king, or I should say at least an unholy king that asked it. Jeremiah, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, yes, there is. Now that is a great question. And today you and I should thrill at the thought when somebody with an earnest and honest heart will ask, is there any word from the Lord? And they have an interest in learning about it. I'm reminded of the Ethiopian eunuch, aren't you? He was reading in Isaiah, but he was quick to say... After Philip asked, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I except some man guide me? He had a respect for the Word of God, didn't he? Look at the second possibility. What must I do to be saved? That is a great question. To realize the fact related to the personal obligation that's ours. Did you notice some of the features of the question? What must I do? It's not what must somebody else do this person understanding the personal obligation and duty that is his or hers. You'll notice another part of it is the verb do. I have to do something. It's not just what I believe. It's not just what I feel in my heart. There's something I have to do. We should be lovingly delighted when somebody is of a position to ask us that question and really wants to know what the answer is. What about the third possibility? So what happens after the time of my death? Sometimes, as you visit a funeral home, someone, perhaps upon serious reflection of what they have just witnessed, might ask you this one. 
sometimes a child or maybe a, a young teenager. So what really happens when you die? That's a great opportunity for a parent or someone else to open the Word of God and say, we would have no idea how to answer that question, as good as it is, unless God has told us. Because nobody has passed beyond death and come back to tell us anything that's believable, anything that's tried and experimentally true. But the Word of God has told us what happens at the time of death and what happens after it and how important it is to be ready. That again is a wonderful question. What about the fourth one? Is Christ divided? What about the current state of religious consideration on the planet? Is this in harmony with God's will? That's a great question. That question was literally asked in 1 Corinthians 1.13. That's another time in which one can at least then share some ideas from the Bible that often are very challenging concerning what many suppose to be true concerning religion. Another question that's so very good, how do I worship God in a way that's correct? Does it matter how you worship? Many people in our world think it does not matter. And they will even share their thoughts with you on that point. Sometimes, though, you might encounter somebody who is earnest enough and devoted enough to say, from the Bible does it matter? And then there's a handful of verses you and I can quickly go to in which we can readily say, look, it mattered then. And God doesn't accept everything that's offered to Him in worship. It has to be offered the way He has said He wants it. We can read both Old and New Testaments about the examples of that one. But what, again, a great question. What about another one? How is the church to be organized? Does it matter? That again is a great question, and so though men might say, well, it doesn't matter. The Bible says it does. We can again read in verses like Philippians 1.1, and verses in which, 1 Peter 5, verses 1-4, to in which we find the descriptions presented in such a way that we see that the organization was that in which the Bible had indeed made statements. As we rapidly close that list... Let's get a bit personal about it. What is it that constitutes sin? Is this a sin? Is that a sin? And I want some Bible verses that tell me I don't just want your opinion. We should be thankful for questions like that, which we can open the Word of God and say, let's read this together. What does that indicate about that kind of behavior? Does that constitute sin? And we can thus answer in a very definitive and powerful way you can begin to see there's a great difference between questions like that and the questions on the previous slide. They're easy to see the difference. We should be so thankful when we are encountering questions like those. Let's close our lesson like this. Paul told Titus to avoid foolish questions. That was wise advice. That was incredibly wise counsel. May I say today, you and I may find ourselves in positions when someone perhaps, quote, out of the blue asks us a question. And sometimes we may have enough sense to know they're only trying to trick me. They're only trying to entrap me. They're not really interested in knowing the answer. In those kinds of situations, we certainly would, have, would wish to have a Christ-like demeanor in our response. But if it's a foolish question, we'd be wise. 
not to invest a great deal of careful effort or time dealing with it. But when we do encounter these wonderful questions, how sweet and how powerful and how truly meaningful they are. I would maybe mention in passing, as we come to the close of this lesson, how interesting it was in John chapter 4 when the woman at the well, you may recall as a part of that, questions were used by Jesus several times throughout that discussion, and her life was changed forever. May you and I be skilled at using an appropriately asked question sometimes to help make people think about maybe what they've never thought about and where they stand before God. But tonight, as we've studied about avoiding foolish questions, I hope we've been motivated to the powerful nature of questions in general. And tonight, if you and I could revisit that question, what must I do to be saved? We should be eternally thankful God has given us the answer to that question. We aren't left to wonder. We aren't left to men's devices. We aren't left to our thinking as good intentioned as it might be. We have a thus saith the Lord on that subject. Tonight, if there be anyone in this assembly that might wish to respond to the Lord's gospel call of invitation, we'd like to use this opportune time in just a moment to make that opportunity available. If you've never become a Christian, won't you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, and confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, and then be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. If we could help you in that way tonight, what a lovely, delightful time it'd be. But if you need to return to your first love, having been a faithful Christian at some point, we tonight could be a part of celebrating with you as you make confession of those things and repent of them. God has promised to forgive them. This evening, if we could be of some help in a way along these lines, we'd like to use this time to invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.